Section 72 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 19. Tendencies of European Thought in the Age of the Reformation. By the Rev. A. M. Fairbairn. Part 1. When the 16th century opens, the West, with the exception of Italy, is still medieval, distinguished by a superficial uniformity of mind, thinking ideas which it has ceased to believe, and using a learned tongue which it can hardly be said to understand. When the century closes, the West, with the possible exception of Italy, now fallen so far to the rear as she once stood in the van, has become modern. Its states have developed what we may term a personal consciousness and an individual character, have created a vernacular literature and a native art, and have faced new problems which they seek by the help of their new tongues to state and to solve. In Spain, the land of ancestral and undying pride, the humors of a decayed chivalry have been embodied in a tale which moves to laughter without ever provoking to contempt. In Portugal, the navigators have created afresh the epic feeling. A new Iliad has been begotten, where swifter ships plough a vaster sea than was known to the ancient Greeks, where braver heroes than Agamemnon do battle against a mightier Troy, where travellers fare to remoter and stranger lands than those visited by Odysseus. In France, where the passion for unity is beginning to work like madness in the brain, Rabelais speaks in his mother tongue the praises of the new learning. Montaigne makes it the vehicle of the new temper and its cultured doubt. Clément Marot uses it to sing the psalms of the ancient Hebrew race. John Calvin to defend and command his strenuous faith. While Descartes, born in this century though writing in the next, states his method, defines his problem, and determines the evolution of modern philosophy in the language of the people as well as in that of the learned. In England the century began in literary poverty, but it ended in the unapproached wealth of the Elizabethan age. In Germany, where the main intellectual interest was theological and confessional, Martin Luther gave the people hymns that often sound like echoes of the Hebrew Psalter. Kepler, listening to the music which nature reserves for the devout ear, discovered the unity which moves through her apparent disorder. And Jakob Böhme, though but a cobbler, had visions of higher mysteries than the proud can see. The Netherlands proved their heroism in their struggle for independence, and their love of knowledge in the tolerant reasonableness that made them a home for the persecuted of all lands. In Scotland, William Dunbar, Gavin Douglas, and David Lindsay shed luster upon the early decades of the century, while in its later years reformers like Knox and scholars like Andrew Melville trained up a people who had imagination enough to love and achieve liberty without neglecting letters. The thought which at once effected and reflected so immense a revolution can be here traced only in the broadest outlines. We are met at the threshold by twofold difficulty, one which concerns the included thought, 
and another which concerns the thought excluded. The 16th century is great in religion rather than in philosophy, and stands in remarkable contrast to its immediate successor, which is great in philosophy rather than religion. With the latter, the great modern intellectual systems may be said to begin, and to it belong such names as Bacon and Descartes, Hobbes and Locke, Spinoza and Leibniz, Gassendi and Malbranche. But without the earlier century, the later would have been without its problems, and therefore without its thinkers. The preeminence of the one in religion involved the preeminence of the other in thought. For what exercises the spirit tends to emancipate speculation, and raises issues that reason must discuss and resolve before it can be at peace with itself and its world. Hence the thought whose course we have to follow is thought in transition, dealing with the old questions, yet waking to the new, quickened by what is behind, to inquire into what is within, and foreshadow what is before. But while the thought that is to concern us may thus be described as moving in the realm of our ultimate religious ideas, the thought that is not to concern us moves in the realm of political and social theory. The two realms touch, indeed, and even interpenetrate, yet they are distinct. The ideal of human society is a religious ideal, but it is a consequence or a combination of religious ideas rather than one of the ideas themselves. Hence, though certain of the most potent thinkers of the 16th century occupied themselves with the constitution and order of human society, with the actual or ideal state, both in itself and in relation to the actual or ideal church, yet they must here be rigorously excluded, and our view confined to the thought that had to do with the religious interpretation of man and his universe. It is customary to distinguish the Renaissance as the revival of letters from the Reformation as the revival of religion, but the distinction is neither formally correct nor materially exact. The Renaissance was not necessarily secular and classical. It might be, and often was, both religious and Christian. Nor was the Reformation essentially religious and moral. It might be, and often was, political and secular. Of the two revivals, the one is indeed, in point of time, the elder. But the elder is not so much a cause as simply an antecedent of the younger. Both revivals were literary and interpretative. Both were imitative and recreative. But they differed in spirit, and they differed also in province and in results. There was a revival of letters which could not possibly become a reformation of religion, and there was a revival which necessarily involved such a reformation. And the two revivals must be distinguished if the consequences are to be understood. The roots of the difference may be found partly in the minds that studied the literatures, and partly in the literatures they studied, though even here the qualities, the interests, and the motives of the minds only stand the more clearly revealed. The difference is better expressed by a racial rather than by a temporal distinction. The term race, indeed, as here used, does not denote a unity of blood, which can seldom, if ever, exist. 
but unities of language, inheritance, association, and ideas. In this sense, the Catholic South was in speech, in custom, in social temper, in political and municipal institutions distinctly Latin. And for similar reasons, the Protestant North may be termed Teutonic. Now, of these two, the Latin race was in thoughts the more secular, while the Teutonic the more religious. But as regards custom and institutions, the Latin peoples were the more conservative, while the Teutonic were the more inclined to radical change. And this is a difference which their respective histories may in some measure explain. The Latin race, especially in Italy, was the heir of the Roman Empire, still a vivid memory and a living influence. Its monuments survived, its paganism had not utterly perished, its gods were still named in popular speech. Customs which it had sanctioned and dreams which it had begotten persisted having refused, as it were, to undergo Christian baptism. Italy was to the Latins as much a holy land as Palestine had been to the Crusaders, with graves and relics and shrines lying in every valley and looking out from every hill. And these appealed all the more to the imagination, since ecclesiastical Rome was a reality, and imperial Rome a memory and a dream. The eternal city was like a desolate widow who yet tarried and yearned for the return of the Caesar who had been her spouse. And if Rome lived in the dust of her ancient roads and the ruins of her temples, the Italian peoples and states seemed singularly suggestive of Greece their republics and tyrants, their civic life and military adventurers, their rich cities and their colonies and commerce, their rapid changes of fortune, their swift oscillations from freedom to bondage and from bondage back to freedom, their love of art and of letters, their mutual jealousies and ambitions, were Greek rather than Roman. Indeed, at certain moments, they might almost make us feel as if ancient Greece had risen from the dead and come to live upon the Italian soil. Here, then, the Renaissance could not but be classical, not the product of some accident like the capture of a city or the fall of an ancient dynasty, but the inevitable outcome of minds quickened by the Italian air and made creative by the vision of a vast inheritance. The Teutonic mind, on the contrary, had no classical world behind it. Its pagan past was remote, dark, and fertile, without art or literature, or philosophy, or history, or any dream of a universal empire which had once held sway over civilized men. In a word, its conscious life, its social being, its struggles for empire and toward civilization, its chivalry, its crusades, its mental problems and educational processes, all stood rooted in Christian religion. Behind this the memory of man did not go, and into the darkness beyond the eye could as little penetrate as the vision of the man can trace the growth of knowledge in his own infant mind. Now, these different conditions made it as natural that the Teutonic Renaissance should concern itself with the early Christian ideal as that the Latin should with the ancient classical literature. And where they touched religion, that the one should be more occupied with its intellectual side and the other with its institutional. 
for where the Roman Empire had lived, the Roman Church now governed. The literature which the Teutonic mind mainly loved and studied and edited was patristic and Christian, but the literature which the Latin mind chiefly cultivated was classical and pagan. The Latin taught the Teuton how to read, to edit, and to handle ancient books. But nature taught both of them the logic that binds together letters and life. As a consequence, the Latin Renaissance became an attempt to think again the thoughts and live again the life embalmed in the literature of Greece and Rome, while the German Renaissance became an attempt to reincarnate the apostolical mind. The Latin tendency was towards classical naturalism, but the Teutonic tendency was towards the ideal of the scriptures, both Hebrew and Greek. Among the Latins, almost every philosophical system of antiquity reappeared, though in an instructively inverted order. But among the Teutons, the field was occupied by theologies based on Augustine and Paul, while philosophy began as an interpretation, not of literary thought or societies, but of man, individual and social, as he had lived and was living. Hence, in the region of belief, the Latins were more critical and the Teutons the more positive. The thought which the Latins studied was that of a world into which Christ had not entered, though it was one in which Caesar had reigned. But the thought which the Teutons cultivated had Christ as its source and God as its supreme object. The Latin Renaissance thus produced two most dissimilar yet cognate phenomena intellectual systems affecting mainly the notion of deity, and orders like the Society of Jesus, organized for the work of conservation and reaction. On the other hand, the parallel phenomena produced by the Teutonic Renaissance were attempts either to revive the religion of the apostolic literature or to found the Protestant churches and states. What concerns us here is the new thought and not the new organizations and these preliminary distinctions and discussions will enable us to set the Latin or classical Renaissance in its true relation to the Teutonic or religious. We begin with the most obvious of the influences exercised by the revival of letters upon the thought of the 16th century, viz. those concerned with grammar and what it signified, and with language as the creation and the interpreter of thought. It has often been said that the Church preserved the knowledge of Latin as a living tongue, but Lorenzo Valla, 1406-57, would have said if the tongue were still alive, it were better dead. As a grammarian, Valla held grammar to be higher than dialectic, for it took as many years to learn as dialectic took months, and he may be said to have discovered literary and historical criticism by executing with its help judgment on three famous documents, viz. the Vulgate, which he condemned as faulty in style and incorrect in translation, the damnation of Constantine, which he proved by its anachronisms to be late and false and forged, and the apostolic symbol, whose terms and clauses he showed could not be of apostolic origin. His criticism of these documents we omit all reference to that of the Pseudo-Dionysius, was prophetic and more potent in a later generation than in his own. 
Erasmus published in 1505 the Annotaciones on the Vulgate, and in a dedication which served as a preface, he compared Valla as a grammarian and Nicholas of Lyra as a theologian. And he argued from the errors which had been proved to exist in the version which the Church had, in a sense, canonized by use, in a way that was at once an apology and a call for his own edition of the Greek New Testament nine years before it appeared. In 1517, a copy of the De Donatione Constantini Magni came into the hands of Ulrich von Houten, who published it and, with his usual careless audacity, dedicated it to the Pope, whom he straightaway proceeded to denounce as a usurper and robber. Later this was sent to Luther, just as he was meditating his De Captivitate Babylonica Ecclesiae, and it strengthened his trust in the German people, confirmed him in the belief that the Pope was Antichrist, and fortified him for the daring deed of burning the Pope's bull. The criticism of the Apostles' Creed indicated a method of discussing dogma which only needed to be applied to become a theory of development capable of dissolving the vast systems of the traditional schools. We need not be surprised that Calvin speaks of Vala as an acute and judicious man and an instrument of the divine will. The Italian mind was simple in spite of all its subtle complexity, and in the Renaissance it was like the explorer who set out to find a new way to India and found a new world instead. It had no more typical son than Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. He was, if we are to believe his nephew and biographer, chivalrous, beautiful, radiant, a man it was impossible to see without loving, an artist who loved art, a thinker who delighted in thought, a seeker whose passion it was to find the truth, and who would gladly have sold all he possessed to buy it. Born in 1463, he studied canon law at Bologna, then first at Padua, and later at Paris he cultivated philosophy. When only twenty-one he returned to Italy and read Plato in Florence under Ficino. Three years later he traveled to Rome, where he drew up nine hundred theses, philosophical and theological, which he offered to discuss with the scholars of all lands, promising if they came to bear the cost of their journey. But heresy was discovered in some of these theses, and the disputation was prohibited. Later he devoted himself to a contemplative life, renounced the world, divided his goods between his nephew and the poor, saying that, once he had finished the studies which he had undertaken, he should wander barefoot round the world in order that he might preach Christ. He was a mystic, nature was to him a parable, history was an allegory, and every sensuous thing an emblem of the divine. He magnified man, though he distrusted self. And as he believed that truth came only by revelation, he felt bound to seek it from those who had thus received it from God. Hence he searched for truth, successively in Aristotle, in Plato, in Plotinus, in the Pseudo-Dionysius, who seemed to many, even after Valla had written, the source of the highest and purest truth. But, as Spico said, philosophy seeks truth, theology finds it, but religion possesses it and the truth which religion possesses is God's. 
man can best discover it in the place where God has been pleased to set it. Now, in his quest for truth in its purest sources, Pico heard of the Kabbalah, and conceived it to be the depository of the most ancient wisdom, the tradition of the aboriginal revelation granted to man. And just then, John Heuchlin, German mystic and scholar, found Pico. He was older in years, but younger in mind. He had studied philology in Paris, law in Orléans, and he had lectured on Greek in Tübingen. He was then on his second visit to Italy, with all the mystic in him alive and unsatisfied. The God whom he wanted, the logic of the schools could not give him. By their help he might transcend created existence, though even then what they led him to was only the boundless sea of negation. In Aristotle the impossible, in Plato the incredible was emphasized. But in the region of spirit things were necessary which thought found impossible or reason pronounced incredible. The Neo-Pythagorean school saved Heuchland from the tyranny of the syllogism and restored his faith. In this mood he came to Pico, and to his mood the Kabbalah appealed. Its philosophy was a symbolical theology which invested words and numbers, letters and names, things and persons with a divine sense. But Heuchland was more than a mystic with a passion for fantastic mysteries. He was also a scholar. And the idea that there were truths locked up in Hebrew, the tongue which God himself had spoken at the creation, and which he had then given to man, compelled him to learn the language that he might read the thought in the words of the deity. So he put himself to school under a Jewish physician, acquired enough Hebrew to pursue his studies independently, and as a result, published in 1506 his De Rudimentis Hebraicis. He himself named this book a Monumentum Aere Perennius, and history has justified the name. It helped to define and determine the religious tendencies in Teutonic humanism, to change the fanciful mysticism that had begotten the book into a spirit at once historical, critical, and sane. It practically made the Hebrew scriptures Christian, an original text which could be used as a court of appeal for the correction of the translation and of the canon which the usage of the church had accepted and endorsed. Knowledge of the language thus made the interpretation of the Old Testament more historical and more ethical. It could now be read as little through the Gnosticism of the Kabbalah as through the Roman associations of the Vulgate. The event which took the Old Testament out of the hand of fantasy turned it into an instrument of reform. For, if it is doubtful whether Protestantism could have arisen without the knowledge of the Old Testament, it is certain that without it the Reformed Church could not have assumed the shape it took. In all this, of course, specific dangers might lie for the scholar who could no longer freely use the allegorism of Alexandria to convey the New Testament into the most impossible places of the old, and who was therefore tempted to reverse the process and employ the language and spirit of the Old Testament in the interpretation of the New. But these dangers were still in the future. 
For the present, it will be enough to recall the story told in an earlier volume of the controversy between Reuchlin and Pfefferkorn, and of the burning of Reuchlin's books by the Inquisition. In consequence of this unjust treatment, the humanists addressed a series of letters, at once eulogistic and apologetic, to Reuchlin, which were published in 1514 under the title Epistolae Clarorum Virorum. The second edition of 1519 substituted Illustrium for Clarorum. This book suggested to one of the younger and brighter humanists, John Jäger, better known as Crotus Rubianus, Luther's Crotus Noster Suavissimus, a professor at Erfurt, a series of imaginary epistles written by vagrant students in the execrable dog Latin of the schools, to Ortvenus Gratius, otherwise Ortven de Grais, professor of Belles-Lettres at Cologne, a man whom Luther, in his most empathic and plain-spoken style, described as poetistam asinum lupum rapacem sinum potius crocodilum. The epistolae, while describing the experiences or adventures of their supposed authors, and it is here where the characters so humorously reveal themselves, praise Gratius as well as the divines and divinity of the schools, and censure the poetae seculares, or juristae, who had eulogized Reuchlin. In their composition, various scholars collaborated, notably Ulrich von Hutten, then ablaze with the enthusiasm for Germany and the passion against Rome, which made the strife a joy to his soul. The prison is broken, he cried. The captive is free and will return no more to bondage. O oh, century when studies bloom and spirits awake, it is happiness to live in thee. End quote. Strauss thought the epistolae a supreme work of art, named them eine weltgeschichtliche Satire, and placed them alongside Don Quixote, since they were pervaded by so excellent a humor as to be higher and better than any merely satirical production. There is here ground for ample and radical differences, but on one point there is none, the success of the satire. It deceived the very elect, the friars who were satirized saw the truth of the portrait and did not feel its shame, even though the men of serious mind, who could not be deceived, were offended. Erasmus did not love it, nor did Luther, who said votum probo, opus non probo, and named the author einen Hanswurst. But it made the schoolmen ridiculous, and while they were laughed at, Reuchlin was applauded. He died in 1522, six years after the Epistolae had appeared, the same year in which Luther published his New Testament, sorrowing over the lapse from the church and from letters of his young kinsman, Melanchthon, and over the coming revolution which yet had in him a plain prophet and a main cause. In 1516, two years after the first volume of the Epistolae, Erasmus's Novum Instrumentum appeared. The man himself we need neither discuss nor describe. He was a humanist, that is, his main interest was literature. But his humanism was German, that is, the literature which mainly interested him was religious. 
In an age of great editors, he was the most famous. But he was not a thinker, nor a man who could seize or be seized by large ideas and turn them into living and creative forces. His greatest editorial achievements were connected not with the classics, where his haste and his agility of mind made him often a faithless guide, but with the New Testament and the Fathers of the Church. Religion he loved for the sake of letters, rather than letters for the sake of religion. He had a quick eye, a sharp pen, a fine humor, and could hold up to man and society a mirror which showed them as they were. He was fastidious and disliked discomfort, yet he could make it picturesque and amusing. His letters are like a crowded stage on which his time lives forever, and we can hear and see even as his ear heard and as his eye saw. We are indeed never allowed to forget that he is a rather too self-conscious spectator, and that while all around him men differ and he is a main cause of their differences, yet there is nothing he more desires than to be left alone to live as untroubled as if he had no mind. He is, quote, so thin-skinned that a fly could draw blood, end quote. Yet, or possibly therefore, he is a good hater, especially of the ignorant mob, the obtuse and vulgar man who could not see or feel the satire within the compliment or the irony hidden in an ambiguous phrase. He is one of the men whose unconscious revelations of himself have a nameless charm. We see him as a student whose very circumstances remind him of his origin, ortus a scorto, as his enemies said, impecunious, forced into an order he did not love, thirsting for knowledge hard to obtain, seeking it at home or in Paris, where life is fast, while his clerical guardian is suspicious and his own temper self-indulgent. Then we are touched by the early struggles of a scholar who loved learning and good living, and neither liked nor acquiesced in the poverty which seemed his destined lot, though we may be offended by his complaints, which are too frequent to be dignified, and his appeals for help, which are too urgent to be compatible with self-respect as we understand it. His pictures of our gracious and spacious England, loved because it's so kind to the stranger, the seclusion and erudition of Oxford, the repose and learned activity of Cambridge, the regal Henry, the magnificent Wolsey, the devout Collet, the genial Moore, the statesmanlike yet thoughtful Warham, who can rule the church and yet remember the scholars who serve it, are of the sort which pleases the reader and which he loves to read. And if he desires first-hand knowledge of the manners and morals of a picturesque day, the miseries of the seas and the comforts of the shore, or the discomforts of continental travel, with its strange bedfellows, crowded inns, dirty linen, and unsavory food, or of the dignified society and refined art of living to be then found in the great Italian cities, or of Rome and Roman society under Julius II, where warlike pontiff and cultured cardinals, the spirit of the Borgia and the temper of the Renaissance, make the capital of Christendom an epitome of the world, 
or of the hopes, the disappointments, and the sorrows of an editor with a zeal for letters and a passion for praise, who negotiates now with mean and now with open-handed publishers, and stands between three publics, one sympathetic and appreciative, a second suspicious and sore and critical, fearful lest he go too far, and a third exacting and insatiable, determined to compel him to go much further than he wishes, or of the reforming men and movements, the strange and tempestuous Luther, the audacious and restless Hutten, the moderate and scholarly Pirkheimer, the conciliatory and reasonable Melanchthon, the heroic and magnanimous Zwingli, the learned and large-minded Oikolampadius, then he will find this knowledge superabundantly in this vivid and entertaining correspondence. Yet, if we would know Erasmus, he must be studied in his more serious works as well as in his letters. There we shall find the clergy of all grades, from the friar and the parish priest to the pope, the superstitions and ceremonies, the pilgrimages and fastings, the distinctions in dress and food, the worship of relics and of saints, pilloried and satirized and killed, at least so far as ridicule can kill. And his lighter moods express his graver mind. And unless this mind be known, there is no person in history to whom we shall find it harder to be just. He is a proud and a strong man when questions are at issue for which he supremely cares. But he will seem to us indifferent or vain or weak, where the question is one for which he did not care, however much we may wish he had. And curiously, where his strength, as well as his weakness, most appears, is in his edition of the New Testament. The inaccuracies of his text, the few and the poor authorities he consulted, the haste of the editor, the hurry of the publisher, the carelessness of the printer, and the facility with which he inserted in the third and later editions a text like First John verse 7, which he had omitted in the first and second, are all instances of weakness familiar even to the unlearned. But the sagacity which saw in the epistle to the Hebrews a work instinct with the spirit but without the style of Paul, which doubted whether John the Apostle were the author of the Apocalypse, which discerned in Luke the Greek of a writer skilled in literature, which perceived in the Gospels quotations from a memory which could be at fault, or which inferred textual errors, even where the authorities were agreed, is characteristic of the honest scholar and indicative of the courageous man. What is still more significant is the deliberate way in which, as an editor and exegete, he repeats the views and reaffirms the arguments of his more occasional works. Stunica charged him with the impiety of casting doubt on the claims and the authority of the Roman See, and of denying the primacy of Peter. The church, Erasmus said, was the congregation of all men throughout the whole world who agreed in the faith of the gospel. As to the Lord's Supper, he saw neither good nor use in a body imperceptible to the senses, and he found no place in Scripture which said that the apostles had consecrated bread and wine into the body and blood of the Lord. Heathenism of life and Judaism of worship had come upon the church from the neglect of the gospel. Ceremonies were positive laws made by bishops or councils, popes or orders, 
which could not supersede the laws of nature or of God. The priest who wore a lay habit or let his hair grow was punished, but if he became a debauchee, he might yet remain a pillar of the church. These were brave things for a man so timid as Erasmus and so desirous of standing well with the authorities of the church to say, and in saying them he was governed by this historical idea. Things unknown to the New Testament were unnecessary to the Christian religion. What contradicted the mind of Christ or hindered the realization of his ends was injurious to his church. This idea determined the attitude of Erasmus both to Rome and to Protestantism. He indeed honestly believed that where Lutheranism reigned, there literature perished, and that to restore the knowledge of the New Testament was to bring back the mind of Christ, who was the one teacher God had appointed, and therefore the sole and supreme authority in his church. Hence his difference from Luther was as inevitable as his difference from Rome, and more absolute, for in the one case he differed from a man, in the other from a system. It has often been said that his De Libero Arbitrio enabled him to express his difference from Luther without expressing his agreement with Rome, or recanting his earlier criticism of ecclesiastical abuses. This judgment is both prejudiced and unjust. It is indeed certain that the book was written in a desire to dissociate himself from Luther, as well as in response to the appeal to write something against the new heresy. But it is no less certain that the book expressed a point on which Luther's scholasticism offended the humanism of Erasmus. The saying, Liberum arbitrium esse nomen inane, seemed to him an enigma absurdum, and for this reason, it was unknown to the New Testament and the Apostolic Church. It might be Augustinian, it certainly was scholastic, but it was neither biblical nor primitive. Erasmus, in short, wrote as a Greek and not as a Latin theologian, as a classical scholar and not as a Western divine. He could not have selected a point more characteristic of his own position. He would have the Christian religion known through its creative literature. He would not have it identified with the philosophy or theology of any school. End of section 72